Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane in the studio with me, and I do mean in the studio, which is rare these days, but they're actually here. I've got Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. It is so exciting to actually be here. I know. I forgot what you look like. Yeah, exactly. Well, I had this two-dimensional version. A lot more grey than it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Hadn't noticed. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's a bit bit weird, isn't it? I, I feel a bit confined with the two of you in this small room. I don't know. It's <laughs> well, because like, it's, been, it's been your own private studio exactly. for so long now. And I had to wear pants. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny, like, the whole thing of, I'm not wearing day wear, I'm wearing something more like evening wear that I'd wear if I went to the grocery yeah. store. Because day wear, I would not wear to the grocery store. Very I, different. Game. I did remember to change out of my slippers. <laughs> well done. I actually did. I, I spoke at a conference the other day, and after my lecture, there was a magic show. And so, you know how often, I'm sure everyone does this, they kind of just wear the business, you know, your nice stuff on top and just wear your slippers. And so I got ready to do the lecture like that and then thought, oh, hang on, with this, it was a great, it was this wonderful thing. It was a virtual magic show. I thought, what if they make us stand up and walk around the room? And I've got my slippers on. So I actually wore high heels at my, you know, my desk. It was very exciting. Yeah. I've fully dressed very up. good at sort of rolling my chair out of the, yeah, out of the range of the camera and good. then getting up. Oh, yeah. that's a good very idea. Seamless. It's a good very skill. Seamless. Yeah, it's very seamless because you, people just don't want to see that. They don't. I, I did something the other day where someone said we used a different platform yeah. and there was no virtual backgrounds. I was like, mm. what? Uh, sorry, what? <laughs> you mean you can see what's behind me? Holy. Oh. <laughs> Let me just Hang do on. some cleaning. <laughs> How many people are attending? 800. Ah, okay. Well, I'm sure we can do something. <laughs> oh, that's T- great. Turn my desk around. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on a sheet. You know? like, <laughs> I've seen that, yeah. Anyway, it all works. Well, we should jump into some news. Um, Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us? Well, I've been reading about the International Space Station this week, and um, one of the really cool things about the space station is some of the experiments that they can do there. So, obviously, there's you know, different gravitation, gravitational things up there to work with. Mm. Uh, and so this particular study was exciting because it's the longest biological experiment they've ever done on the space station. So it's a six-year-long study. And what they were looking at was what um, actually happens to DNA because of radiation. And so we know that there are some issues with uh, obviously radiation in space damaging human DNA and so they wanted to look at what that meant for reproduction so if we do eventually send people to space will they be able to have kids right because it's a long ride to Mars and you get bored that's it exactly (laughs) I mean you know it happens in every sci-fi right that's it it, exactly (laughs) but um, yeah so what happened in this particular case is they took some they're looking in in mice so they took um, sperm from mice and then free dried it and sent it to the space station and this was really interesting to me because they don't i didn't think of this they don't have freezers on the mm. space station to um store sort of these biological samples for open that the window yeah yeah exactly true it's real cold. but um yes yeah, so it was freeze dried so they were able to keep it at room temperature for six years so they then brought it back to earth and they then used that um, they reconstituted the sperm and then put it into mice eggs and then they found that um they were able to reproduce 240 
healthy mice pups from that. Wow. And the really important thing was that all from, of those... From sperm that had been in space. Sperm in space, been freeze-dried in space for six years. <laughs> and then, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, um, but, yeah, really importantly, the mice were all healthy, so the oh. DNA was all fine, and then those mice were then able to reproduce again, and so all of the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those mice also were healthy. So wow. this is sort of some really nice evidence saying that, you know, th- th- there's some potential ways of, of protecting, you know, reproduction. (laughs) But um, one very interesting point is that uh, there is a potential that the method that they used actually means that we don't know the full story. Because what the thought is, is that some of the damage that happens to human DNA in space is because of what happens to the water within the molecules. And obviously, if it's freeze dried, the water is removed. And so the, the authors were very clear to say that, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's ruling out it being an issue for real cells and real DNA in the future. Yeah. It's interesting because I think any any sort of DNA damage, I mean, the reproduction thing is one thing, mm. but any sort of long-term habitation and or travel mm-hmm. um, is a really big deal. I'm, I'm curious that they didn't sort of um, – it's a pity they couldn't sort of shoot it around the sun for just one one revolution. Yeah. So that's outside of the protective areas of the Earth because, yep. you know, it, the, the space station is not in the worst situation. You know, mm-hmm. um, fire it through the Van Allen belts, which are, you know, something that when they did the Apollo missions to the moon, they were really worried about yeah. because, you know, these radiation levels are really high and say, well, what happens to that freeze-drive sperm, which I'm sure is stored right next to the freeze-dried ice cream. Don't think about that too much, folks. <laughs> oh, God. Don't get mixed up here. <laughs> they sell it at the Melbourne Museum. Anyway, um, don't think about that. But it's... Um yeah, that, that, that kind of damage that you mm. can get over a longer period of time is really substantial. Mm. I, I just love – I remember we had the, the um, sadly late Gene Cernan on our show a few years back, mm. and he made the comment that these days we didn't explore space, we utilise space. Mm. And this is a great example of that, of yeah. utilising the, the environment of space to do this really amazing science it's that so you would otherwise see. And, and I, actually, I actually got, you know, as always, into the rabbit warren of science when you start reading these stories. And I was reading about other experiments that have been done on the ISS. And one of my favourite, I didn't realise this, is that um, because of the different gravitational um, fields there, they actually can grow proteins more slowly, mm. and and so mm. they can and crystals can um, grow more slowly, and so they actually end up with higher quality crystallization, right. which means that you can do things like test drugs yeah. um, there and actually get much more information about how disease develops and what potential treatments we could do. By doing it on the space station yep. because it's oh, just wow. a better environment. For oh, yeah, because there's a lot of protein crystallographers out there who have a hard time making their proteins turn into crystals. Yeah. Just send them to the space station. That's it. Yeah. Cheap and easy. Bring them back and then, um, yeah, chuck yeah. them in front of the synchrotron. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. But it's, it's funny, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't, and, and it's funny, I, I knew about all the ones like, you know, le- growing mm. food in space yep. and all of those things. Spiderwebs in for, space. Yeah. yeah. And things that are for space travel. But yeah. there's all of these experiments going on for us back here that we just don't hear about as much. It's yeah, cool. no, it's a cool. Yeah. It's a cool environment. It's a very cool environment. You like that pun? Yeah. <laughs> um. Speaking of ice cream, yeah. What is your favourite ice cream flavour? Oh look, I, I move around a bit, but I'm, I'm a big fan of a really good vanilla. I've got to be oh, yeah. and say oh, yeah. I love a really good vanilla. 
What about you, I'm Doctor? A, I'm a berry person, like yeah. boysenberry. Boysenberry. Well. Oh, I, t- I tend to go for a, like a pistachio or a hazelnut. Oh, yeah. they're good too. But what, but what if I told you that um, you could get recycled plastic flavour? <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> sounds disgusting. <laughs> well, researchers from the University of Edinburgh have actually found a way of turning recycled plastic into the flavouring vanillin. That is amazing, actually. It's amazing. Yeah. It's really, really cool research because um, – so this is breaking down um, plastic that's known as PET. So, you know, when you sort of take your plastic and you can recycle it and, you know, many of us have recycled our scrunchable plastics. Um, but often recycled plastic is still made into – other plastic. other plastic so you know mm. sometimes at the supermarket they've even got a bench there that says this yep. bench has been made from plastic bags yeah this plastic bench has been made from plastic bags <laughs> yes and so so plastic begets plastic so we yeah. still we, yep. we, we're kind of making these second generation products mm. um and they're often of lower quality and less value so even economically you're losing mm. a lot there and you're not really solving the problem of what we do with all this plastic mm. anyway so these researchers were looking at how you not only can break down the plastic so we know how to break down the polymers in plastic into their components parts and so what they were doing was feeding those component parts to bacteria and so they've done some really clever bioengineering with these bacteria to give them the enzymes that would actually turn those um, plastic components into vanillin which is used as a flavoring but it can Mm. also be used in cosmetics and in um, cleaning products and all sorts of things that are sort of vanilla centered Mm. Um, and so uh, it's really really cool because they've done all the optimization so it would actually sort of happen um, you could sort of do it in a one pot experience Experiment. Okay. So what they did was, after they did all the optimization of the bacteria um, to be able to do the, the chemistry, um, they actually went onto the streets of Edinburgh, picked up a plastic soft drink bottle, brought it into the lab um, and uh, did the decomposition. And it's at 72 degrees, so it's kind of in warm, hot water mm. for a couple of days to break the plastic down. And then I let it come to room temperature, throw in the bacteria with some you know, buffer to make the right pH conditions for the bacteria to be happy. And sure enough, they made it into vanillin, like in one pot, like just you know, from, from a plastic bottle off the street, they could extract the vanillin at the end. Yeah, I, I think that's a lot different to what you often read about. You know, there's so much work going on in this space, and someone say we, we took this, you know, piece of plastic the size of half of a five cent piece, and after three days of processing, it's sort of like, well, that will never be used mm. commercially because it's just not scalable. Mm. Yeah, but, but this sounds more, you know, grab the bottle off the street and chuck it in the bucket, and off you go. You know. Well, I guess the next step is how would you then scale that up? Yeah. But to do a real time demonstration of a, a and not of of you know a. It was literally a bottle off the street. Mm. Um, And to turn that into a high-value product, Mm. it might not necessarily be food-grade at the moment, the processor. It might not necessarily go into ice cream. But, um, you know, it could go into other um, cosmetics, soaps, Mm. other products, and is one of the first examples of being able to sort of feed plastic in and get something that is higher value. So they're sort of calling it upcycling, Mm. if you like. So it's (laughs) molecular upcycling. I mean, at the end of the day, organic chemistry is just turning one set of carbon molecules into another set of carbon molecules. But to be able to do this process in, you know, real life example, Mm. it's a really great, great sort of piece of biotechnology, bioengineering that could help us deal with our plastic waste going forward. Yep, Definitely. it sounds like a really good approach. Well, I just wanted to mention, I had a big day yesterday and, uh, you know, Dr. Lauren's already made her comments, but, you know, I got my <laughs> second vaccination uh, shot yesterday for my Pfizer and this time there were no age jokes from the staff from Western <laughs> Health. You know, last time um, I walked up, because, you know, you've got to be in the age range of 40 to 49 and, and the lovely lady there, she said to me, sorry, are you, sorry, you're 49? <laughs> 
<laughs> I said, yes, I am. And I handed her my license. She goes, oh. Maybe she thought you were 20. <laughs> to be fair, I'd been waiting outside for five and a half hours yeah. at that point. So I, I was probably looking a bit shabby. You know, you know, like someone who'd come in from the wilderness after six months. You know, I'd, I'd grown a beard you know, so, during the wait time. But, but I had it all done. Um, not feeling great today, which excites me because it means my immune system's doing its job. And, you know, feeling worse now after Dr. Lauren came in and said I look like garbage, which was, you know, kind, I exactly. thought. It was meant in a really caring way. <laughs> I think, but it's, it was interesting to me. Um, you know, I actually took my thirteen-year-old son along to the to the hub because I was thinking about this, and I thought, from you know, our group in the room right now, mm. we never experienced anything like yeah. this when we were kids. Yeah. And you know, when you say vaccination hub, it's like, what was that? We never saw something like yes. that. It was something if you if you ever watched a you know old um, sort of film from the eighties, you might have seen something in Andromeda Strain or something. And mm-hmm. you know, but that, see that just showed my age just then. Um, <laughs> sorry, outbreak. Sorry, um, outbreak. <laughs> What's the most recent one? Um, anyway, or, or it'd be something you see on the newsreels yeah. of people in the fifties lining up for their yeah. polio vaccine. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like it's that historic kind of yeah. you know moment. And you think when those when when your kids reflect back on well, what they'll, was it they'll like? That. They'll remember that. Yeah, and yeah. I thought it was good to take him along. And mm-hmm. the best part was when the security guards looked at him and said, "Are you here for Pfizer?" <laughs> and, and he goes, "No, I'm here with my dad." I'm like, "He's thirteen, man. Yeah. How far down are we going at this point?" Like, uh, you know, because he's tall. You know, he's tall. So, but it was yeah, it was an interesting experience had an amazing um, Western health nurse there named Anu who um, was just you know spectacular mm. um, she did write the date wrong on my vaccination <laughs> card but other than that damn good damn good job and I just you know everything is just everyone there is just so nice and I think you know for everyone out there you know when you when you're interacting with what is you know a difficult system at the moment I think the booking system and everything has been really difficult mm. just remember that these people on the other side of it are generally having pretty shit days, mm. I gotta say. And you know, they need they need a lot of support from us. And I think the staff at Western Health that are running that vaccination um, centre at the showgrounds are spectacular. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I don't know about the other ones. I haven't been to the other ones. I assume they're equally good. You know, the the one that the I think the the one that the um, exhibition buildings is run by St Vincent's. That's and, right. yep. You know, so. I'm sure just as amazing, but it's it's really you know I, I I try and talk to them a bit more, and they probably think who's this lunatic, but um, just just you know say you know we see you, you know we see what you're doing, and it's and it's a really big deal. I actually had a very similar. I had my second dose a few weeks ago, mm. and um, I had this really like amazing. You look great feeling. though. Well, thank you, yeah. thank you. <laughs> I actually I actually Glowing. did very well actually, <laughs> but um, but no, like just this feeling of history, you know, like yeah. we we are changing history, and yep. I think you know there was when I got my dose, I had that feeling of everyone there was for the same purpose, and it was yep. very powerful. Yeah. So thank you to everyone. It is. It's, and, uh, yeah, huge. You can't say thank you enough to mm. all the amazing people, you know, even people at the testing stations, yep. you know, all the public health workers yep. doing an amazing job. Yeah. And, look, there's a, there's a sea of bullshit heading in the direction to try and stop people doing this at the mm. moment. Mm. And I see that and I read it every day in many of our major newspapers. Mm. And I think, well, you know, keep doing that. That's fine. But the rest of us are going to keep promoting this because we know it's the only way we're going to have a, a life that's enjoyable in the next 10 years if we if we deal with this. And we've been very lucky here in Australia and I want to continue you know, being lucky. That being said, today I feel like garbage. So, <laughs> but you're doing you're doing your part. So if I if I push the wrong button here for some music, folks, you'll know why. We'll be back in just a minute with our first guest for today. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line with us now is Dr. Rebecca Allen. She is the coordinator of the Swinburne Astronomy Online Program and the uh, program lead of the Microgravity Experimentation Space Technology and Industry Institute. And lots more. Welcome, Rebecca. How are you going? 
I'm going well, thank you, and a great job with that super wordy title. <laughs> <laughs> what I tend to do whenever it gets these things get sent to me is I I just delete fifty percent, and it still sounds impressive no matter who it is. So you know that's that tends to be my go to. But um, now you're you're on the line today because we um, we wanted to chat you a bit, and I, I suppose this is something that what was it, probably 1980s where the last sort of real interest um, lied around this, but NASA has announced two new programs to go back and have a look at Venus. Now, there's been so much interest in Mars over the last couple of decades, but the older people in us would remember that back in the, the early 80s and so forth, there was just a huge interest in Venus. But why is it that we haven't done anything in that space for so long? Why did we sort of give up on our, you know, very near similar neighbour? Look, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think it has to do with what those missions, you know, the the Russian or Soviet missions and NASA, what they turned up in the 70s was enough for us to see that Venus, you know, you can land something, the electronics die within minutes. Mm. It's hostile, probably no life, no thank you. And so let's move on. Now, last year, with the uh, you know the detection of phosphine, or the the maybe detection of phosphine, we'll say because it's hotly contested, that brings back the question of okay, no life on the surface, probably never. Um, but what about the atmosphere? Venus has this really funky atmosphere. We know it's you know mostly carbon dioxide and a you know hot house, but there's some interesting properties it has there. So why not? With all of these tools we've developed to, to send things to Mars, even to Jupiter and, and, and investigate moons of Jupiter and Saturn, why not go back to Venus and say, okay, what exactly is going on with the atmosphere? But also, how can that help us understand Earth's potential? Mm. And, and was actually Venus maybe habitable much sooner than Earth? And could it have, could it have hosted oceans? over a billion years ago yeah so now we're just in a better position where we've done these kind of missions we have the tech it's like well let's go let's go back to venus now and take a closer look yeah i think um when we think about some of the 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 cameras and so forth that were available back in the 70s it's such a you know despite the fact that the two voyager craft are still kicking goals and sending us back data from you know 40 years ago um that the tech is totally different can can you talk us through um that that element of hostility for for venus because i'm not sure everyone has a feel for you know like we know that mars is not somewhere where you want to walk outside because you will not survive the temperature and the atmospheric pressure is too low um but you know venus is a different beast and we often don't think of it as such a hostile environment so talk us through some of those elements of hostility so I think the first thing when we're thinking about the you know kind of terrestrial worlds and comparing them to Earth, for example, Venus takes about 240 Earth days to have a Venus day. Mm. So basically, you know, you have this one part of Venus which is just getting blasted by the side of the sun, but you have this very thick atmosphere which is mostly carbon dioxide. So that means the surface of Venus. There's an immense pressure because of the weight of all that atmosphere. So it'd be like being about a kilometer down under the ocean here on Earth. So immense pressure, but also the temperatures are about 500 degrees Celsius. So that's enough to melt things like lead, but also the carbon dioxide, when it is under that amount of pressure, it becomes corrosive. So any kind of you know uh, delicate electronics you have, they're just going to get fried. And so it's just when we when we think of Earth, you know, it's 
we're fortunate to have an atmosphere because that's what helps us maintain temperatures. That's what helps us keep a lot of the icky um, solar wind from just giving us cancer in two seconds. Mm. Venus, on the other hand, it's just gone way too much in the other direction. Yeah. I'm curious there, obviously these two missions are not landers, although I know one of them has a a probe, but how much have we learnt in the last sort of couple of decades in terms of our ability to make more resilient craft, not just for cold, as we see with the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars, which has been amazing, um, but in terms of heat, because I know there's been several craft that have, have gone very close to the sun and they're monitoring the, right. the solar activity, and, and, and that's a very different environment to, to the Martian environment. So yeah. have we learned a lot there? Yes, we have. And so like what you're referring to, the Parker Solar Probe, for example, it has this, um, I think it's like titanium shield heat shield and so that's incredible because we want to take the part of the reason we're interested in the sun is we want to understand more about this phenomenon i mentioned solar wind and so it's about measuring the magnetic field and the types of particles that are coming off from the sun and so that heat shield will enable the parker probe to still make those measurements but it's directional so, you know, the probe is going to be in this uh, elliptical orbit around the sun. Now, when we talk about landing something on Venus, you're immersed. <laughs> so, you know, you would basically have to, to completely shield it. And then that would affect um, the, the ability of the instruments to take measurements. And you're after different things. So, for example, the uh, Venus mission, the one you mentioned, the Da Vinci Plus, that will have the descent probe, it will kind of be on this mission where it's going to drop down and it will not have as long of a lifetime as the other NASA and the European Space Agency orbiters. But as it goes down, it's going to be measuring these gases. And this is where I was coming back to Venus having this complex atmosphere. At the very top, the atmosphere is moving at over 300 kilometers per hour. That's insane. Mm. And it has these dark patches, which are just absorbing a lot of UV light. And so that's a mystery. But about 50 kilometers above the surface of Venus, you're at about the temperature and pressure as you would be on the surface of Earth. Mm. So maybe this is where we're thinking phosphine or some microbial life could exist. And then again, you get to the base of the atmosphere and you're in a no thank you zone. Um, and so, you know, basically what we want to understand is more about that atmosphere composition, but then also there's some incredible instruments on both the um, other probes, which will do this thing called synthetic aperture radar, which as you're going back to the missions in the 70s, we have these radar images of Venus. Mm. But with what synthetic aperture radar lets us do is get 3D mapping. So now we're going to be able to 3D map the surface like never before, and that's going to be incredible for revealing a lot about Venus's past. Yeah. Rebecca, I had a question on that. You just touched on the fact that the lifespan of these missions is going to be shorter than some of the others that have been done in the past. Do we know roughly how long scientists are going to have to collect data? Are we talking days or months? Do they... So they haven't said about the probe, and the probe is the one I'm the most interested in because yeah. how we're talking about the shielding and the instruments, how long do they expect it to, to last? Mm. And I think it will just depend on those different layers of atmosphere it's going through. Um, and so I'm really going to be looking forward to when they release more of the specs on that because, again, these missions aren't 
they're slated to, to not launch until the end of the 2020s. Mm-hmm. So we still have a bit of time um, for that. And um, I think for the, the orbiters, you know, you could see something like the Mars orbiters where they're like the ESA's um, Mars Express. I mean, it's it's been going for almost yeah. a decade now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, who knows when it comes to the orbiters, it could provide consistent data for you know years and years where the descent probe may be a few days or months if we're lucky yeah well, one of the things i find really interesting with these sorts of missions is when we think about places on earth that are where there's grandeur you know we look at something like the um you know the, the height of everest and how how much we have such a reverence for that mountain but it, it's dwarfed by other mountains in the solar system do do we know even with the old data of of any of those sorts of structures on venus yet or is that all sort of still to be revealed We may have we may have lost Rebecca there. I think. Um, anyway, that's that was a really good question too. I was hanging out. <laughs> no, that's a, oh, again. We oh. actually do, and that's one of the features we're interested in exploring. Oh yeah, sorry, the internet was. Um, no, that's one of the the things that was confirmed is that Venus has thousands and thousands of volcanoes, and so understanding why it has so many volcanoes when we don't think it has the same tectonic plate activity as Earth. We think that its core might be different. Um, but we know that some there's one particular mountain I was trying to find, um, but it, exactly, it's, it's higher than Mount Everest. Mm. And so it's not really surprising if you would have this kind of active tectonic activity, like we see what formed Everest, that you could get these really tall features but um, that's part of what Da Vinci Plus will be looking at is the things that are called tesserae, which is what we believe would be the Venusian equivalent of tectonics on Earth. Mm. I'm guessing the other thing that we'll be sort of trying to find out here is what's more normal, Earth or Venus? Like, so if Venus had a past similar to Earth, then when we start looking at other star systems elsewhere in the universe, it might be more likely mm. that we'll find Earth-like scenarios. Whereas if Venus is more than norm then that might be a bit disappointing. I think that's a really good uh, kind of view and perspective because when we're looking at the results, for example, from Kepler and now the the tests, we're seeing, oh, well, you know, we're we're finding planets that are the right distance from their star and are the right size and mass that they could be terrestrial worlds mm. and they could be in the habitable zone of their star. But what exactly does that mean? <laughs> because technically, Venus and Mars are in the habitable zone, yeah. habitable zone of our star, and yet it's like the three Goldilocks. One is too hot, one is just right, and one is too cold. So that, that really helps us temper our expectations, because it's not just about location, it's about time. You know, maybe two billion years ago, Venus was great. Um, well before Earth was, and so that's that's where we have to we have to consider that other those other factors when looking looking at exoplanets. So uh, it's Dr. Crystal here. Um, when it comes to Venus's rotation, does that relate to the fact that it might have a different core to Earth? Like, why is it that one Venusian revolution takes so long? Well, part of it is um, that Venus is a bit closer to the Sun, and you know. On the order, you know, of thinking that uh, Earth is, a, you know, close to 
about, uh, I think it's about 100 uh, million kilometers away from the sun, and, and Venus is about 30 million kilometers closer. So the sun's gravity is going to be more powerful. Um, and so that, that affects it. So, for example, um, you know, Mercury is much closer, but Mercury actually has a quicker day than Venus. So it's just, we're not entirely sure. It's very complex what causes that, that rotation of the planet. Now, for Earth, we think part of what gives Earth this 24-hour day is it a it's its distance from the sun and that effect of gravity but it's also the fact that we have the moon and somewhere in the earth's history there was this collision that formed the moon and that set the earth's axial tilt uh, which venus also does not have one giving us season but that also the formation of the planet itself and any interactions will affect its rotation so that's another interesting part um, of venus's history and Uh, Like you said, revealing, looking at this geological activity will help us reveal what's going on with its core. Now, the core is more, I would say, directly uh, related to the most interesting question is Venus doesn't have uh, a magnetic field in the same way. So Earth has got two different magnetic fields. We have the one that comes from our core, which is rotating. And so that drives it, but also in the upper atmosphere, when you have all the, the particles and radiation from the sun hitting the upper atmosphere, that's, that induces a magnetic field. So Venus has one of those, but it doesn't have the other kind of magnetic field. So that's what we're really curious to see is, is what's going on with Venus's core. And is it is that a, pre, you know, a predeterminer of what will happen to Earth eventually mm. when Earth's core slows down? Rebecca, just before we let you go, uh, this was only just announced by NASA a few weeks back now, but um, when are the proposed launch dates scheduled for these two missions? So uh, what I saw was uh, between 2028 and 2030 is the time frame. Mm. And we could see that, actually. I, I mean, it depends, again, because NASA's not just sending these probes to Venus. They're also trying to do all these incredible things going back to the moon with Artemis. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the technology that's involved in these Venus missions is there. So I think it's actually probably more about finding a launch window than it is building the instruments uh, and the vehicles at this stage. So we could see that either come forward a little bit, um, would be my hope. (laughs) But yeah, uh, late... Late 2020s is the, so 2028 is the slated launch. Well, it sounds good to me. Whenever I see these dates, it always makes me want to eat a bit healthier. So I'm around for, <laughs> for these launches because they're a fair way out. Yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, thanks so much for chatting to us. Um, and no doubt we'll talk to you again as, um, as we get closer to those dates and about some of the other work you're doing there at Swinburne University. Thanks so much. Happy to speak with you. That was Dr. Rebecca Allen from Swinburne University. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music in a moment, and then we'll be back with our, our next guest shortly. It's, um, geez, I, I tell you what, I get, um, I get chills when I think about the mm. idea of this, land, this, this probe going down through the atmosphere and just having a peek. Because we, you know, we haven't seen anything. We don't know. And the way she described that, you know, what it's like on there, it's just so you can picture it so viciously. I think it was probably the word term. Did you I'm mean thinking vividly? Of. No, I'm thinking viciously. viciously. Like, <laughs> she, she, really, she vividly pictures vivid, it viciously. viciously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just sounds like a pretty. But I love this idea that there's there's one layer of Venus's atmosphere which might have mm. the right temperature and pressure to be Earth like ish mm. you know and and yep. if we could solve this phosphine mystery of, of where this organic chem- 
compound came from yep. that's been found in the yeah, atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just there's some fantastic chemistry that that we're going to find out. And, and and you must you must think well, okay, NASA has a lot of different missions to choose from, and these two were proposed. And if that phosphine data hadn't come out recently, would these two missions have gotten off the ground? Like, how important was it? Because all of a sudden, Venus is on everyone's radar. Everyone's like, you know, that thing that we see in the sky is really bright every single day. Yeah. Um, the, that one, not the crappy little red one. <laughs> <laughs> the really bright one that we can navigate by, pretty much. Um, yeah, that one. We're going to go back there. We're going to check it out because we, so we had exciting. crappy cameras in the 70s. <laughs> it's so fun. exciting. Anyway, it'll be cool. All right, folks, we're going to take a break uh, for some music. We'll be back in just a moment. Triple R. Uh, well, you know, I didn't play music, but I played some important station announcements. Told you I was sick, folks. Anyway, uh, on the line now, we've got Kate Gunningham, who is a research officer at the Epworth Centre for Innovation in Mental Health. Good morning, Kate. How are you going? Morning. Very well. It's great to have you on this call because you're running a, a trial in mental health, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But I thought before we get into that, I wanted to just sort of get you to outline a bit about the sort of prevalence of depression and you know, what some of the numbers are and what we're seeing as impact at the moment, especially, you know, post-COVID, you know, well, not post-COVID, we're in COVID. Um, but, you know, with the current situation, what, what sort of things are you seeing? I mean, depression is the leading cause of disability in the world. In Australia, 45% of people will have an episode in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's huge. It um, affects many, many people. And it, you know, is a leading cause of death for men between ages 24 and 40. Um, COVID has really amplified these statistics. Uh, headspace, I think their referrals went up by 200%. Wow. Um, so really affecting young people um, in that in that space. And yeah, um, essentially, we're just trying to find we need more more treatments um, to help these people. Yeah. In, in terms of the treatments at the moment, what, what are the options? I mean, I know there's, you know, there's SSRIs everywhere. There's all sorts of cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, what, what, what are the sort of things that are floating around? So first-line treatments at the moment are predominantly antidepressants therapy and elective um, electric convulsive therapy. Uh, you know, they're pretty inadequate. Only two-thirds of people really respond to antidepressants um, and they come with a slew of side effects. So they're not really uh, accessible to a lot of people. Um, they're often costly. They often require a lot of time. Uh, yeah, so, you know, we've got... But, Brain stimulation is really coming into its own. Um, at the, you know, we've got things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which um, – how much do you want me to describe? Yeah, run through it for us. So I think these are things that people haven't heard before. So, Right. So people would have heard of ECT or electric shock, um, yep. and what that is is it induces a seizure in the brain, and the analogy would be like rebooting a computer, and it kind of um, rewires everything is kind of the analogy. And then transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, it creates a magnetic field and it causes neurons to fire where they're not previously firing. And we target areas of the brain that are known to be related to dep depression. So that's the um, left frontal lobe, prefrontal lobe. Um, but you have to go into that. You have like a dentist chair and um, it's got this coil that's kind of placed um, over your head. It's like, mm -hmm. looks like Wally, the head of Wally, I guess. Right, yep. And, and then you've got DBS, deep brain stimulation, where it's kind of like a pacemaker in your brain. 
um, and that's quite in, you know that's invasive, so you have to go to surgery for that. And then this trial is looking at TACS, transcranial alternating current stimulation, and what this does is it increases the excitability of neurons, so they've got a better chance of firing. So when a neuron talks to another neuron, it has to kind of so I get over, and this is kind of increasing that. Yeah. yeah. So, so do we know? Um, do we know at this point that 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 lack of neurons firing is one of the reasons for depression? Is that, or is that a symptom? Or is it a cause? What? How much do we know about that? Uh, unfortunately, we don't know a lot. You know, research is finding that SSRIs or the prevalence of serotonin isn't really why antidepressants are being effective. Um, it looks like it's more its ability to bind with the BND, like it, it might get a bit too technical, but essentially neuroplasticity is what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so there are studies that show that people, um, their alpha and theta brain waves look different in people experiencing depression compared to people who are well. Um, and we're really trying to investigate that further. Mm. Now I'm going to hand you over to Dr. Crystal. You should be out here. Hi, it's Dr. Crystal here. Um, I was just wondering because a lot of the treatments for depression are often associated with side effects and so some people are resistant to undertake treatment whether it's chemical treatment like drug treatment or other sort of like um, ECT because they're concerned about side effect profiles. What do we know so far about um, potential side effects from this new technique? Um, You're 100% right and people really want options. Um, The safety profile of TACS is really, really good. So um, ones that have been reported have been very mild and very transient, so the duration of having uh, the cap on the head and the things that have been reported have been mild irritation and itching um, and some people can see phosphenes, which kind of looks like... um, Like the sparkles in your eyes. Yeah. yeah, or kind of, yeah, kind of like when you stood up too fast and it's like, ooh, yep. um, it kind of looks like that. Um, but you know, once once you're not putting, you know, once the caps off, um, no one's there's been no report of ongoing side effects whatsoever. Um, so that's incredible when you think about ECT having memory loss or antidepressants having low libido, lethargy, a whole slew of things, and ingesting something in your body compared to it. Yeah, so for people who are worried about that, this is a great alternative option. Is this also something that you would be able to self-administer with relatively low amounts of clinical sort of observation even at home? So that's exactly what we do with these trials. They're sent home with this device for the duration of treatment, which is um, a month. So you put it on for 20 minutes a day, once or twice a day, and it's really simple. Um, It's kind of two small electrodes the size of a small business card that you place on the scalp held um, secured in place with like a swimming cap and attached to a held a battery handheld device that looks like a phone and you press play cool. um, and you put some saline to make sure that it's conducting and yeah fantastic now kate what do you need in terms of um the trial how can we help because i know you're, you're looking for participants how do people get involved if they're interested Please, please, please. We would love people to get involved. Um, if you're interested, if you Google ECIMH, um, we'll come up 
at the Epworth Centre for Innovation in Mental Health. If you scroll down all of our studies at the page and you can click on um, any of them, we've got things for this, for um, OCD, schizophrenia, there's multiple, uh, it's a broader reach for TSES beyond just depression. Um, but yeah, uh, the study, what's involved is you come in and we do an assessment on your depression symptoms, your cognitive assessments and memory thinking stuff like that and then an EEG which is you come into the clinic and um, we record your brain activity see what's going on there train you in the device send you home and then you put it on once or twice um, a day and we give you a phone call every week see how you're going and then at the end of the four weeks you repeat that process and left alone for a month and then you repeat it again to see if there's been changes have been maintained fantastic um, well look it, so, it sounds like a, a good thing for people to give a try so um you you tweet out the details and we'll we'll retweet it and post it around and make sure everyone can see it but kate thanks so much for uh, chatting to us about this I, I love the idea that some of these these new sort of technologies coming in are far less invasive and, and far le- you know have far fewer um side effects as dr crystal was asking because that's something that i know the last thing you want when you're feeling bad is more crap that you have to deal with on top of that so look this is this is really interesting thanks so much for chatting to us and um good luck with the study thanks shane (laughs) folks that was kate gunningham the research officer at the epworth center for innovation in mental health we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back um in just a moment to actually talk to our final guest today we're going to be talking about the july lectures lectures in physics which i remember from my youth (laughs) Um, which was just last year. Um, everyone's laughing. That's um, that's cruel, you two. Anyway, here we go. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We've got about 14 minutes to go before we have to hand over to the amazing team from Eat It. And on the line now, we have Dr. Susie Shi. She is a senior lecturer in medical accelerator physics in the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Susie. How are you going? Good morning. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on because I wanted to talk about something that's coming up, which I'm sure is going to be a bit different this year as it probably was last year. But it, you know, I remember this well from my youth, but these are the July lectures in physics. And I mean, not to, not to bag people out too much, but when I was an undergrad, there wasn't a lot of good lectures that I really enjoyed. But the July lectures in physics, I remember being these amazing things that the general public could come to where things were you know, actually really well communicated. So when are they, first of all, when are they happening? Yeah, great. So um, the July Lectures in Physics is actually the longest running uh, series of public lectures, I'm pretty sure, at Melbourne University. Mm. Uh, So it's in its 53rd year, if you can believe that. Um, I'm actually the new curator or coordinator of the lectures this year, and they happen every Friday evening in July. Okay. Uh, And because we've got five Fridays in July this year, we have five lectures rather than the usual four. So extra one yes and and how are they running this year are there going to be a few people allowed into the lecture theaters there or uh you know yeah, is it all so going to be running, online we're running um with as many people in person as possible because live uh live talks including live demonstrations are just way more fun for everybody in person um but we're also we've hired a professional production crew to do a live stream as well so we're going to be having that dual dual mode delivery this year which is an extra challenge for us uh, but we're hoping as, as soon as restrictions lift and allow us to have more people we'll release more tickets yeah through our registration how many how many people do you think you'll be able to have at the moment so uh well our normal audiences are a packed out 500 right. um but capacity limit at the moment is around 50 hopefully that will be raising to 
you know, at least 100 or maybe 25 or 50 percent capacity. So um, we're, we're working with getting in as many people as possible. But the lectures are always really popular. Mm. Um, you'd actually be amazed at how popular a series of public lectures about physics are on a Friday evening in the middle of winter. Uh, they always sell out without without a doubt. So um, if, if it's something that's interesting to people listening in, uh, do jump on and register as soon as possible. Is there anyone that you know of in the audience who's been to all 53? Like, is there anyone who said, you know, comes uh-huh. in and said, look, yeah, I, I missed one in 1972, but otherwise, you know, because I was sick, otherwise I've been to all 53. Is there, is there anyone who can put their hand up to that? Do you, do you know, uh, I, I, so I, because it's my first year, I've been trying to get some data on um, on on things like that. And I, I am told that there are some people who've come to almost all of them. I don't think we've had anyone who, who's come every single time. But a lot of people actually come to the whole series, not just one lecture. Yep. Um, they'll come every Friday in July. And already I've had emails from people saying, oh, I was waiting to hear about this year's ones, you know, waiting to register. It's, it's a thing that they do on Fridays in July. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm going to get some pushback here from my colleagues in the studio. But I mean, it, you and I know that physics is far more interesting than biology or, or the medical <laughs> sciences like by a country mile. And we have such a great reputation in the public for, for being so interesting and so fun. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> be that as it may. And I don't know you well enough to know just how serious <laughs> well, they know me pretty well. Um, but, you know, can you tell us, like, because you, you've got one coming up yourself. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what sort of things should people expect? Because I know on occasion, this has happened on occasion and it's rare, but when you say the word physics to some people, there's this sort of glazing over that occurs and they kind of stop listening and they start thinking about, you know, what they were watching on Netflix earlier that day. And yeah. and we have, to, we have to sort of dissuade them from this view. So what, what are you going to be talking about during your particular lecture? So um, so my particular lecture is actually based on a book that I've just written that will come out early next year, um, which is called The Matter of Everything. But my lecture is called Insights from the Pioneers of Nuclear and Quantum Physics. And that's because our theme this year is called Breakthroughs in Physics Through Collaboration. Hmm. So as you said, physics is, you know, the subject that everybody thinks, you know, can be a little bit dry sometimes if you're just looking at like the physical reality of the universe. I mean, to me, that's pretty exciting, but some people... Uh, you know, are much more interested in, okay, well, uh, how, do, how do humans work rather than how does um, quantum mechanics or subatomic particles work? Now, this year, we're actually going with uh, sort of the combination of those things because as a working physicist, I see that the most important things are skills like collaboration and the human elements of being a human as well as trying to investigate the universe in a way that's unbiased and that's an incredibly difficult challenge and so we have this this view really that especially the early pioneers in fields like nuclear and quantum physics um, which are some of the most esoteric areas of physics we have this idea that people were um, kind of the lone geniuses, you know. We have this Einstein mm. image, not to have a go at the name of the show. Um, we have this sort of <laughs> Einstein image in our heads of um, solo physicists sitting there, uh, you know, working something out. And we think they were just, what, struck with genius or struck with insight. And the truth is that they all had enormous networks of um of collaboration they all had peers they all had you know people that they spoke to and bounced ideas off so even these people who we see as lone geniuses had that and it's really clear when you get to things like the experimental scientists um, just how dependent they were on the other people around them Mm. that's from from glass blowers to you know to all, all sorts of different um 
expertise, even in those very early days. Uh, it's a very interdependent field. Uh, so my lecture is actually going to be talking about both how we built experiments to, to uncover things like that quantum mechanics is real, that, you know, wave wave particle duality, the fact that the atom has a nucleus. Um, but I'm also going to be delving into the stories of the people who did that and how it was that they worked together with other people who often remain nameless in our history. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, where would Watson and Crick be without Rosalind Franklin? <laughs> exactly. And it's often women. And I have to say that because when I was researching my book, I kept coming across these stories of um, of women who were named in the papers or named in acknowledgements, and I'm like, wait, wait, who's that? Never heard of that. Mm. So Ernest Rutherford, who famously did the gold foil experiment that discovered um, that the atom had a nucleus, uh, and he also did a number of pieces of research after that about um, the elements transmuting and the fact that elements can change form from one to the other. That was one of the discoveries he made along with Frederick Soddy, um, both of whom eventually won the Nobel Prize. But actually some of the foundational work done there was by his first graduate student, who was a woman named Harriet Brooks um, in Montreal in Canada. Mm. And her story is effectively lost to mm. history. Mm. Um, but she actually did, you know, some really foundational work in that field and then she eventually uh, was basically forced to quit her job because uh, she got married. Um, and at that point in time, if you uh, got married, you you couldn't work uh, as an academic or you couldn't work as a researcher. So it's a really interesting combination of sort of history and people and contributions that are either uh, known about or not known about. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. One of the things that we've been lucky enough to do on this show, or I've been lucky enough to do, is interview Jocelyn Bell twice, 20, oh, 20 years apart. And so I interviewed oh, her yeah. sort of 21 years ago and then I interviewed her again last year. And, you know, one of the loveliest people I've ever come across. But, of course, you know, should have won the Nobel Prize for discovering the pulsar. And her description of the environment she was in was fantastic where she talked about, you know, she had so much imposter syndrome going on but she was damned if she was going to let them beat her. And so she thought if she was going out, she was going out with the best stuff she could ever do. So she was more meticulous than any of her male counterparts, which was why mm. she saw something that, you know, was, was extraordinary that everyone else missed. And, you know, yeah, yeah. and, you know, her boss won the, you know, Nobel Prize for that. And sadly, you know, I think to this day, because, you know, the Nobel committee will not you know change their mind, you know, of course, because um, no, that would be that would be sensible. You know, I've got I've got nothing but... I was going to say respect. But no, um, I, I love the Nobel Committee. They're fantastic. Oh, just, yeah. um, but, you know, uh, Jocelyn, Jocelyn also is just a, such an amazing person. Mm. So I was lucky enough that so I've been in Oxford for the last 14 right. years. Um, so Jocelyn was my colleague there. So I actually have um, you know, had a number of wonderful conversations with her over the years. And um, she's just so supportive of everyone around her. And when she won the Breakthrough Prize, which was kind mm. of, you know, the Nobel for, for teams yep. or the Nobel that's not the Nobel. Um, <laughs> she gave it all to um, <clears throat> create scholarships in physics for underrepresented groups to increase diversity. Which yeah. is just it was some three, three million pounds or something. It was like a huge amount yeah. of money and it's ongoing. We talked a little bit about that in the interview. It's just spectacular. The woman's yeah. so kind and thoughtful. So, Crystal. I love this theme about collaboration, you know, how collaboration drives innovation. Um, mm. I know maybe maybe you haven't announced them all yet, but what are some of the – can you share with us some of the other topics for the, some of the lectures or is it still yeah. under wraps? No, no, it's absolutely – it's out there because they're every Friday so you can book into the ones that, that – 
you like the sound of or book into all of them. Um, so I've taken a pretty broad view of what collaboration means, so across disciplines but also across cultures. So after me will be uh, Associate Professor Dwayne Humaka, who will be talking about Indigenous astronomy, science and truth-telling. Um, so he works very closely with Indigenous communities and has created the first um, courses in, in Indigenous astronomy within the University of Melbourne, so that's going to be amazing. Um, after that is Dr Liz Hind, um, who's, uh, again, a colleague of mine in, in physics, and she actually straddles between sort of physics and biology, and so she's going to tell us all about how the physical architecture of DNA, the physical way that DNA um, folds up and, and, and how proteins fold, um, how that's actually related to its uh, function. Um, and, and it came as a surprise to me uh, a number of years ago when I kind of learnt how important physical structure is in biology. So that's a really, that's going to be a really um, fascinating one. Um, and then we've got two more. One is Professor Jeff Taylor, who uh, is a, a key um, leading member of the International Committee for Future Accelerators, is the chair of that committee. And he has led uh, and been involved in these massive, massive particle physics collaborations with the Large Hadron Collider and things like that for many years. So he's going to give us that insight to how you coordinate literally thousands of scientists mm. across the world to, to do these mega science projects. And then we're going to finish with um, Professor David Jamison, who's the former curator of the lecture series, um, who uh, must have given more of these lectures than anybody else. Uh, so he's a wonderful presenter. Um, and he's going to be talking about revolutionary discoveries, discoveries in physics made too soon. So how it is that people have uh, come to enormous breakthroughs but way ahead of their time. Uh, so, for example, um, a person called Oliver Heaviside, Oliver Heaviside discovered um, part of Einstein's special theory of relativity nearly 20 years before Einstein. Um, and there's a few other examples as well where these ideas were dismissed as sort of ridiculous until the rest of science caught up and they could fit in with the framework. Yeah. So he's going to be asking um, how are these discoveries made? Are they made by a lone genius um, or is scientific creativity yeah. more complex? Well, look, Susie, it sounds fantastic as always. I'm also really pleased to hear there's so many young presenters in the group and anyone who hasn't seen David Jamison, he's one of the early lecturers I liked when I was a, a student in <laughs> physics. He was he was always so animated and I actually remember some of the crazy shit he did when, when he was teaching. So um, getting people to dress up as electrons and all sorts of stuff he used to do when we were undergrads. <laughs> but um, thanks so much for, for chatting to us. Um, please tweet, uh, you know, connect us via twitter to the links to this and i'm sure people okay. can google the july lectures in physics at the university of melbourne and they will find it but great talking to you we're going to get you back at some stage to talk about your research Absolutely. Um, we'll I'd do that in a, in a few weeks time but thanks so much good luck with your lecture i hope you have a, a huge audience and the lockdown doesn't affect you too much but um good luck Thanks. Thanks for having me on. You are very welcome. Folks, that was Dr. Susie Shee from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne. We've been talking about the July lectures in physics, which are coming up. Oh, some of those lectures sound like fun. Mm -hmm. I'm like, like Googling it, it now. Get on, get on board. Yeah. Um, we've got to go. We're going to hand over to the team from either Dr. Lauren, great to have you, and Dr. Crystal, both of you in the studio. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Always a pleasure. Great to be Folks, here. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. Now, here's the team from either. Have a great Sunday. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.